Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So in the last few shows, Jim, we've been trying to encourage our listeners to subscribe not just listen to us but subscribe there's that word though but yeah there's a problem with the word subscribe because it indicates that you're gonna have to pay which of course you would never have to do for how do we fix it but a lot of podcasters are worried about this word they think it's a little off-putting it suggests some kind of commitment you can't get out of as opposed to just a very convenient way to get your shows so subscribe (laughs) And of course, you can find us wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts. On to this episode of How Do We Fix It? The Rise of Digital Repression with Steve Feldstein. Five years ago, when it came to my smartphone, I really didn't think much about the trade-off inherent in being able to more efficiently use Google Maps as opposed to having to try to look up something in a handheld map. And now, all of a sudden, you realize that the last five years, Google Maps can trace where you were, on what day, and what time, which provides a huge amount of information. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? Richard, I might be dating myself a little bit, but do you remember the old Michael Jackson song? Uh, I always feel like somebody's, somebody's watching me. So, <laughs> Not that, right? I think I kind of think we all feel that way a little bit these days. Yeah, China has been watching its citizens using artificial intelligence to weaponize social media and mass surveillance in ways that give the communist government incredible control over what its citizens do and even how they think. So today we're going to explore this scary new frontier and look for some solutions too. Our guest is Stephen Feldstein. He's a human rights expert who has worked for the U.S. State Department, currently a professor at Boise State University and a fellow at the Carnegie Endowment. Steve joins us via Skype from Boise, Idaho. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? Thank you. Happy to be on. Let's revisit that term, artificial intelligence. We know it means machine learning, but but what does it really mean in in the context of what you're talking about here? Right. Really what we're looking at is an ability for a computer to make appropriate generalizations in a timely fashion based on a set of data. Uh, So it's an ability to sift through a large data set and find particular patterns that come out of that. So when you look at things like spam filters in your email, 
Netflix movie cues, uh, things along those lines that curate specific choices based on a large pattern of data that you've otherwise uh, uh, indicated. That's the that's that's a very basic use of artificial intelligence in order to sift through that and then come up with optimized uh, solutions as a result. Can you give us a snapshot of what was one of the scariest or some of the scariest things you found in your research about digital technology and political repression? So what was surprising to me is just how widespread uh, a few governments in particular uh, are using surveillance to essentially get insight into almost every kind of action they might be interested in, uh, in terms of certain individuals in their area. And so, you know, I think uh, in particular, when I started looking into the situation in Xinjiang province in China, and the integration of all manner of technologies from, you know, DNA readers, to uh, the collection of facial recognition images, to Wi-Fi sniffers that could look into laptops and mobile phones, uh, and so forth. But to sort of see the comprehensiveness of this effort and the manner in which artificial intelligence was enhancing the collections of data in order to find specific patterns that in the near past, one would never be able to discern. So, Steve, really... just to be clear for our readers, um, yeah. you're talking about the – Our readers. I, mean, I love just... that. He's such a magazine guy. I just – you know, once <laughs> you just can't take the magazine out of the boy. Um, just to be clear for our listeners – you're talking about the western province in China with, with a large minority Muslim population, right? That's correct. I mean, we've seen different instances where artificial intelligence has been used, uh, you know, to try to, you know, for example, uh, find certain individuals uh, that are suspects in a in a police case. But to see an actual full population numbering in the millions uh, to be uh, to then be subjugated uh, via this technology. Uh, is a really pioneering thing. So, Steve, as a result, you're calling China a surveillance state. What do you mean by that? You know, I think there's sort of two levels when it comes to the how surveillance is being used in China. On the one hand, Xinjiang province, uh, what we're seeing there is is akin to a surveillance state. Uh, but that's different than the rest of, of China. In, in the rest of sort of broader China, when you look at the big cities like Shanghai, Beijing, Shenzhen, and others, there is a growing use of technology by the Chinese government to maintain power and, and keep tabs on citizens. But that the level of what we're seeing in those places is less systematic. It's more sporadic. And I think it's more aspirational in terms of eventually where they want to go, but where they are now. So just to be clear, it isn't that it's uniform across the country. It's just that in specific places like Xinjiang, we are seeing the integration of artificial intelligence when it comes to surveillance in new and scary ways. What's going on in Xinjiang with the repression of the, of the Uyghur uh, Muslim minority? You have an ethnic group that has traditionally been resistant to Chinese rule. Uh, and so there's been a lot of different tactics that have been used over the years in order to extend further control by the central authorities in the province. And so part and parcel of that turn to coercion is the embrace of these new technologies to extend control in a much more systematic, uh, more consistent fashion across the whole population in ways that we've never, we really haven't seen before. Now, so for example, you know, mandatory DNA collection is an example where Individuals in Xinjiang are now being forced to give up their genetic samples to the state government. 
that's another level of coercion and control in that area that is unseen. What's being done that's disturbing in the rest of China? I mean, one example I can think of is is the monitoring of social media. I think it's called WeChat that's very Mm -hmm. popular in China. Yeah. Yeah, no, there's a host of surveillance that's taking place. And I think the the system that most people are talking about and trying to better understand where it's going is the social credit uh, monitoring system that's increasingly coming together. And essentially what this would do when it's sort of fully in place would be to assign a particular score to every individual based on a series of behaviors that are assessed. So if you do something good, you participate in, you know, undergo your civic duty, you have a good credit rating. These are all factors that would go into giving you a particular score. Yeah, I was going to ask you about it because everybody in America has a credit score. We all do, whether we know it or not. But this is taking that idea of the credit score into a much more intrusive uh, form. Exactly. So it's taking the kind of more narrow scope of credit scores tied to your financial history and widening it out to a a wider scope when it comes to your social behavior, your engagement in politics or not, uh, your civic activities, and so on. You know, we have – starting to have in the U.S., what's really creepy and how it's playing out in in China is facial recognition. How does machine learning make facial recognition possible? Yeah. Well – you know, part of, of what's necessary is to actually, you know, you can collect a lot of images, uh, but then it's actually trying to identify specific people that are tied to other databases in order to sort of match those images with information. Uh, and that's where AI can help you rapidly sift through a large amount of information and find specific patterns or identifying characteristics that they're looking for. Could could you uh, give it could you give an example like uh, an example of how AI using facial recognition could be used in the case of someone who the Chinese government suspects is a troublemaker. Right. What you would need is you would have someone who has caught the eyes of the authorities and you need a picture of that person. Uh, and then you have facial recognition cameras located in all sorts of different public spaces throughout the province. And so you start to run through the footage that's being taken either at the moment or in the last week or so, and you just essentially are trying to match up one to the other. Say a handful of these supposed troublemaker faces show up in a region in a city, and they can use data from chat apps to find out that a lot of other people are congregating there. Maybe there's some kind of spontaneous demonstration starting. They can send in the cops to bust it up before it even gets going. That's right. Uh, You know, you can monitor a host of different things. So you can use sentiment analysis to sort of see, are people talking about demonstrations? Is there a rise generally in terms of dissatisfaction that should alert authorities that something might be amiss or might be in the works? You used a a wonderful phrase, sentiment analysis. Ooh, that sounds scary. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Our guest is Stephen Feldstein. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, so, so you, you can use artificial intelligence to track whether things are getting a little more emotional on social media platforms? Right, sure, and you can even tie it to specific issues. So, you know, you could, uh, uh, you know, figure out that there is something that has people really upset. It could be an environmental issue, like an like a environmental spill. It could be, you know, the persecution of a particular individual that has a community up in arms. What essentially it, it gives you is a bit of a tip-off if you're the authorities in terms of there's a rising amount of anger or resentment tied to a certain thing. The other sort of big difference is that what you have in an advanced democracy like the United States and others and what you don't have in China is that you have systems that are built on two very different premises, one of which has the rule of law, has accountability, has transparency and a a means to appeal, uh, and another one which is very much premised on authoritarian principles uh, where questioning political judgments ends up putting you in a very bad place. And it's not just China, is it? I mean, they are actively deploying these systems and recommending them to their client states as part of their Belt and Road initiative. You know, this is sort of an interesting thing. What we've seen increasingly is that many states that are autocratic leaning are starting to show a greater amount of interest in how these types of technologies can be used to further their own political objectives. So you're seeing the take-up of these technologies in ways where enhanced surveillance, greater levels of censorship, and even disinformation are starting to come out and come to bear. Now, none of these countries have yet instituted to such a systematic level what China has established, particularly in Xinjiang. But you could start to see commonalities emerge. And it's not too far of a stretch to say, well, if you're Zimbabwe and you already have an autocratic government that has actively used traditional forms of repression in order to maintain power and are talking to surveillance companies, companies that provide surveillance technology in China to enhance the repressive potential of the state, who's to say what things will look like in 5, 10, 15 years? And China's already saying, hey, we'll come in and build your railroads and build your ports and build your telephone and internet infrastructure, which will make all of this much easier once you decide to do it. Right. So one thing, for example, that I saw uh, is Singapore has just put out a bid that I think a Chinese company is going to take up where they're going to install 110,000 facial recognition cameras on every single public lamppost in the city. So that's an example where the technology linked to a particular political objective can very quickly lead to massive uptakes in surveillance and other types of tactics. And just to underscore how the scales have have changed, 
In the last years of communist East Germany, that's the late 1980s, the East German authorities needed 100,000 people to work for the Stasi, the secret police, to keep tabs on a population of only 8 million. And you say that modern technology can just do that job so much more efficiently. So it's so much easier for countries that are not as bureaucratic as the state apparatus in Germany to keep tabs on the population. So with artificial intelligence and other types of advanced technologies, you can diminish the, the reliance one would need on such a large infrastructure of security forces. And thereby, you can also keep better tabs on those who would directly threaten you, the people that you would arm in order to carry out your repression in the first place. Now, let's pivot to the U.S. Could it happen here? Well, you know, I, I think the advantage the U.S. has politically in terms of our governance is that we have a constitution and a strong tradition of protecting civil liberties uh, that's really embedded in terms of how we do things. So, you know, in the sense that as long as our democracy remains robust and as long as our rule of law uh, uh, as is long something as, yes. <laughs> <laughs> is upheld and nothing lasts forever, then I'll leave it at that. Um, you know, my sense is that at scale exploitation of these technologies is something that is unlikely to occur. But it doesn't mean that there won't necessarily be a degrading in certain aspects when it comes to privacy, which we're already seeing, when it comes to use of surveillance, which we're already seeing to greater degrees, and when it comes to abuse, particularly in our law enforcement sector. Staying with the U.S. for a moment, Steve, how is facial recognition now being used in America and, and other democracies? Now you're enhancing the quality of video surveillance. You're able to locate and identify specific individuals. You're tying it into biometric identifications, and you can start to see where all this starts to go. On the one hand, it leads to the ability to provide services in a more effective manner. It helps to enhance public safety as needed. On the other hand, there are a lot of errors when it comes to how facial recognition currently works. So people get picked up who really may have nothing to do with the issue at hand. And there's not a lot of guidelines still in terms of determining, you know, to what degree, when should facial recognition be used, uh, what, are, what is the error rate, and what guardrails do we have to ensure accountable frameworks? We might not have a single coherent government entity that wants to specifically spy on lots of people, but don't you think we are kind of laying the building blocks, often in ways that are really voluntary for us as consumers. Do you worry that if somebody wanted to destroy a political candidate and they found a way to go through all these various databases, they might be able to really hijack this system to do a lot of harm? Yeah, no, I, I think that that's a very real possibility in the future. I mean, I think what's funny is that Five years ago, when it came to my smartphone, I really didn't think much about the trade-off inherent in being able to more efficiently use Google Maps as opposed to having to try to look up something in a handheld map. And now, all of a sudden, you realize that the last five years, Google Maps can trace where you were, on what day, and what time, which provides a huge amount of information. So one of the things I've personally been doing is, is I've started to delete lots of these repositories of data that have tracked all my movements going back 
five, 10 years. I mean, there's also smart speakers like Alexa and so forth, that these are things where there's a big trade-off when it comes to surveillance. And if used or manipulated in the wrong hands, could lead to really damaging outcomes for individuals in particular instances. You just talked about Google Maps and your response. Can we first look at what individuals may consider doing before we discuss companies and governments. Um, How do I do that? I mean, I've been on Google Maps. I I like this app called Waze. I know that they all have history of where I've been all over the place in the last few years. If I want to get rid of, of that history, is it easy? Yeah, companies have not made it easy for a precise reason in that you know, there is a, a very large advantage they have. The more data they're able to you know, build up on an individual and then retain and then use for future purposes. So, so, so the answer not, is it's not easy. But, but the caveat to that is it's not impossible. And there's many good roadmaps one can use to find a way to reclaim your data. You know, I think one of the things I've done a lot of is what they call informally digital detoxification, which is essentially walking through step-by-step programs in order to reclaim your data, either to turn off tracking, except in specific instances, to erase browsing history after you close, to replace certain types of apps with others that are less intrusive. And so you can do it. It just takes work. It takes time and energy. And, and you know, up until now, I think a lot of people said that was, it. That was a trade-off that didn't matter. Should governments force companies to make it easier for citizens to uh, erase their past data? My argument certainly would be yes. If citizens believe and governments follow that privacy is an inherently important aspect to one's life and really should belong to the individual, then there's many small things the government can mandate or encourage companies to do that will make it easier, just a little bit easier. And so if Google wants to track you, you actually have to press a button saying, yes, I will let you track, as opposed to trying to find a button that says somewhere buried, no, do not track me. That may change the dynamic in a very big way in terms of uh, re-empowering individuals to have control of their data. One thing that scares me a little bit about the big data giants is that they control so many different data platforms that affect our lives. Would it help to break them up? A lot of people are arguing that we need some kind of antitrust action to um, break these tech giants into smaller, less coordinated pieces. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, it's a necessary debate that needs to take place. I mean, I think we have to be careful about what that ends up looking like. Uh, but I think certainly right now there's an inordinate amount of market power that's concentrated in a few tech companies. And you know either there's a regulatory pathway that sort of says this is allowed and not when it comes to data, or you take the opposite approach and say too few platforms have too much control over very specific material aspects of how we run our lives, and that needs to change. We talked about the threat of artificial intelligence in another recent show that we did with Elizabeth Economy of the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, Her new book is called The Third Revolution uh, and discusses uh, what's going on under Xi Jinping in China. How does the U.S. respond to China and to Huawei and to the other aspects of what China is doing with artificial intelligence uh, to its citizens? 
one of the questions is, and that a lot of countries are asking, is there's a, been a big push by the United States to convince countries that adopting Huawei platforms and, and uh, you know, Huawei 5G technology so in particular let's, let's uh, t- is a bad deal. Let me stop you one second and help our listeners understand what Huawei is and, and why it's so important in the global information economy. Huawei is one of the largest telecom providers in the world and provides a range of different technologies that are related to that. And so one of the new technologies that everyone is concerned about is what's called 5G, which would essentially allow a a much greater amount of data to be used and downloaded to all the different devices that we, we rely on, our smartphones, potentially automated cars in the future, your smart speakers, and so forth. And so the idea is whoever constructs these networks and the different aspects within those will then have insight and potentially be able to capture some of the data that comes through there. And so then the question with Huawei, which is you know a very prominent, very large Chinese company, is to what extent will the Chinese government force Huawei to disclose, give up, put in place back doors in some of these telecoms in order to then take that information in different countries and give it back to the Chinese government upon request. The question with Huawei is, and many technology experts believe that Huawei is the most advanced company in the world and is closest to building a successful 5G platform, and many countries are are inclined to go with Huawei. But the question that you're raising is, what information that Huawei learns will then be fed back to the Chinese government? Yeah, that's one of the big arguments that the U.S. government has made when it comes to different countries that are considering adopting Huawei technology for 5G. It seems like so many technologies, not just AI, but a lot of the other elements that contribute to this kind of overarching surveillance economy, they're all moving forward so rapidly, it's hard to get a handle on how we stand astride history and yell stop. Um, Are you optimistic or pessimistic? You know, I I am generally I, I'm I'm optimistic. Well, you you sound like you're hedging. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, it's after having gone through this whole period talking about all the ways that technology is being exploited for surveillance and other repressive means, it's hard to suddenly say, "Well, I'm an optimist anyway." But you know, I tend to be an optimist in that you know, I I part of what I find interesting about this work uh, is that you you try to identify some of the biggest problems that are there. But you do so with a means towards trying to then uh, galvanize people uh, to look for solutions. I do think that what's particularly interesting when it comes to autocratic governments adopting these type of platforms is that it points to an inherent weakness and an insecurity that these leaders have when it comes to actually ensuring their rule. I mean, look, if they were leaders who felt truly secure in their popularity and in their legitimacy – would you need to turn to 24-7 surveillance? Would you need to explore adopting artificial intelligence as a means to subjugate? You know, you wouldn't. That's a great way to end um, on a hopeful note. Right. Because it, right. we could so easily be frightened and scared and throw our hands up and go, I don't know what the heck we're going to do about this. <laughs> so Steve right. Feldstein, thanks very much for joining us. Take care. Bye.
Jim, I don't think I've told you this before, but I believe in the screw-up, or as the English would say, the cock-up theory of history more than the conspiracy theory of history. I think I'm on the same page, but give me your theory. Well, governments are notoriously inefficient. And yes, it's really scary, and this is important, what potentially autocratic governments could do with artificial intelligence and with facial recognition, but they'll screw it up. They will get the wrong people or they'll be notoriously inefficient. But I also worry that even here in the U.S., we're laying the groundwork with all these technologies. No one is explicitly trying to weave them all together in order to spy on us relentlessly. But let's lay out a scenario. Let's say Elizabeth Warren is running for president, running on the campaign of let's break up the tech giants, which is kind of what she's doing. You know, Google knows everywhere she's been for the last 10 years. They know every email she's sent. They have the same for every single member of her staff. What are the odds that somebody on that team is going to be found going somewhere he wasn't supposed to go or she wasn't supposed to go talking to somebody? Maybe In other she words, wasn't supposed to go. companies could use what they know and, about you know, Elizabeth somehow, Warren and her inner circle. Somehow this just leaks to the New York Times or somebody else, and kaboom, Elizabeth Warren's campaign goes down in ruins. And no one would necessarily know. The orders might not even come from the top of Google. You talked about conspiracies. Sometimes it's not one big, super organized conspiracy, but the very fact that all this data exists, that it might be found by somebody, that's a threat. And that's what worries me. And it's one reason I don't really trust. It's not that I don't trust the the big data giants, though I don't. It's that I don't trust any organization to safely maintain data of such power. I've always been a skeptic. I I don't like to see anybody have that much power over any individual or group of people. But optimism, yes, we are seeing more awareness, more tools. And I think that ultimately, it may have less to do with the government breaking up these big tech giants as individuals making individual choices to say, okay, I'm going off Facebook. Okay, I'm not going to use Gmail. Oh, you're such a libertarian. I oh, am. Really? I, I think that ultimately, <laughs> individuals, I, I think a lot of it also government, individuals have more power than they think. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And the question is, who's the we in fixing it? You and me or the government? But that's the creative tension that drives our <laughs> podcast, Richard. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. Our music, our theme music is by Lou Stravinsky. We're a production of Davies Content. Check us out at DaviesContent.com. If you want to make a podcast that's as wonderful as ours, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.